Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Have you recovered from Easter? I don't know if I have yet. I'm thinking about it. You can tell me what you think at the end of this teaching session. So uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we took a break for Easter, but we're going back to a series that we've been in for a while called Aliens. Uh, it's a study of this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, explaining to them that because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, because of their desire to obey God, that there were times they were going to be misunderstood by their culture and viewed as a, a strange, even alien people who genuinely love each other sincerely, deeply from the heart. He writes about how as Christians through faith in Jesus, God's grace changes things. It changes people. It changes us from the inside out and our lives display that change, you know, privately, publicly, individually, corporately. And the last time we left off in chapter 3, uh, Peter was saying that in a world where hate and greed and revenge and violence seem to be the norm, the church should be, should be seen and experienced as the very opposite of those things, as the very opposite of evil. It should be a place where harmony and sympathy and love and compassion and humility and mercy and goodness and peace reign among God's people, making us uh, a uniquely, uh, a, a, a unique community, uh, uh, very strange to, to, to our world, but, but the kind of place that so many in the world are looking for and longing to be part of. Now, with all that said, Peter continues to write this in chapter 3, as he goes on in verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you uh, if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. What does he mean by that? Well, we're going to talk about it, but first, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the time together this morning, and um, I pray in the moments that we have that you would, you would teach us about life. Um, Lord, being speaking at a funeral yesterday and then speaking at a wedding in the evening, I was reminded of the brevity of life, um, how short it really is, and I pray that you would help us to gain a, a, a better understanding of of how you would call us to live from the cradle to the grave uh, in a way that's honoring to you, in a way that's loving to one another, in a way that makes a difference in our world. So um, teach us that, will you? This morning, Lord, we ask, and we humble ourselves before you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've, um, we've learned in this study, Peter wrote this letter about 67 AD when uh, the church was experiencing persecution under the Roman emperor Nero, a cruel a dictator who falsely but intentionally blamed Christians for setting the city of Rome on, on fire. He declared uh, them to be a threat to the empire. Uh, he ordered them rounded up, their money taken, their possessions taken. Some were imprisoned, most were beaten and abused, uh, and many were murdered. I mean, it was a brutal time. Uh, the total number of those martyred during this persecution is unknown. But most scholars agree that that uh, more Christians have been martyred over the last 50 years than even in the first 300 years of the church's existence. Because still today, uh, in various regions, regions of the world, followers of Jesus are persecuted uh, simply because of what they believe, with some paying the highest cost with their lives. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, Christians are currently harassed by governments in over 80 nations. The 10 worst offenders, you know, the 10 places where believers face the most pressure and violence, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Maldives, Pakistan, 
uh, Iran and Yemen. According to persecution.org and opendoors.org, these are websites and groups that, that track and, and offer updates on Christian persecution worldwide. They report that twice as many uh, Christians were killed uh, for their faith in, in, in 2013 than 2012. Um, and while the number of believers put to death in places like you know North Korea uh, are really hard to track because it's such a closed nation, we do know that between 50,000 and 70,000 Christians are held in labor camps there, Sim- some of them simply for owning a Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, uh, for me, it makes Peter's message to the church all the more relevant, especially when it comes to this issue of suffering. Because let's face it, you know, so often in our cultural context, we in the church fall into believing that life as a Christian should be relatively easy and trouble-free. There, I mean, there are some who go so far as to suggest that God kind of owes us health and wealth and ongoing pleasure, although nowhere in Scripture are we ever given such a promise. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And yet we tend to get, we tend to get irritated and upset with God when life doesn't go our way or when we experience any degree of discomfort because, because for the most part, we ignore Jesus's words and we don't really expect to suffer and certainly don't feel like we should. And therein lies the problem. However, from the opening lines of this letter, Peter has been affirming that suffering is an unfortunate reality of life in a broken world. And humanity's sin and rebellion has infected the creation. uh, And the painful repercussions of that uh, impact all of us at some point. In other words, suffering, suffering happens. And as Christians, we're not immune to it. And so here uh, at the end of chapter 3, Peter elaborates on this. Uh, in what is a fascinating yet uh, challenging and complicated text to to interpret. So uh, I'm going to just walk us through it, and hopefully we can together figure out the basics of what Peter is, is telling us. Okay? So the first thing that Peter does as he, as he begins to wrap up chapter 3 is he communicates to his readers certain uh, possibilities of life. And he does it by, by stating a general life principle in verse 13. He says, Who is going to harm you? If you are eager to do good. Now, obviously, Peter was aware of, of what the church was going through because of Nero. But keep in mind, he, he, he has just mentioned in verses 8 through 12 of this chapter how in the course of normal life, in the course of everyday interactions, as Christians, we are to be sympathetic and loving, humble, merciful, honest, peaceful, just really good people. And so as a follow-up, he says... And generally speaking, you guys aren't going to suffer for that. You're not going to suffer for being men and women who are viewed as good. By and large, goodness doesn't encourage persecution. Instead, you know, when we speak uh, and act in ways that are kind and helpful, most people are going to be grateful. If we live with integrity, if if we are fair employers, good employees, honest students, helpful neighbors, loyal friends, dedicated family members, community servants, if we're generous with our time and our energy and our money and our possessions, for the most part, uh, the world is going to appreciate us, not persecute us. And God will use our goodness uh, to impact and make a spiritual difference in the lives of those around us, in our community, in our region, in our world. But, Peter says, it is entirely possible that at times and in certain circumstances as Christians, you are going to do everything right, everything good, and suffer as a result, for example, you're in a situation, you tell the truth, but you get accused of lying. You get slandered. You stop on the highway to help somebody who looks like, looks like they have a flat tire. You stop to help, they rob you. You report uh, corruption in your company, and you're the one who gets disciplined. You maintain your personal purity, 
and get labeled a prude, ostracized from your peer group. You go to serve as a doctor or a nurse in a third world nation to help the sick, and you end up getting shot and killed as a result. In other words, you do everything right, yet things go terribly wrong. You suffer. That, Peter says, is a distinct possibility for all of us. Is that fair? No. Do we like it? Absolutely not. But he says, even if, if, even if it should happen, even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. And the Greek term blessed here means happy which seems oddly out of place, a little crazy to me. Really, it's, who's happy about suffering? No one. But that's not really what Peter is suggesting. He's not saying we're happy about suffering. He's just saying that we can find joy in the midst of it. Now, some people are going to say, that's impossible, man. That's not possible. You, how can anybody be, be happy if and when you lose the things of li- in life that, that bring you joy? You know, social status, careers, possessions, freedom, money, relationships, health. Uh, I mean, most people agree joy and suffering can't exist simultaneously. Why is that? Because for a lot of people, most people maybe, even for some of us in the room, joy is all about circumstance. But all through his letter, Peter's been stressing this idea that joy is more than circumstance. Uh, and it's not that when suffering comes, we don't acknowledge the pain or, or we don't cry or question or even struggle to make sense of it all. But it does mean we're able to experience a genuine sense of joy that transcends our circumstance and flows out of understood spiritual realities. I mean, look, the common approach to life, at least in our culture today, is you do good to get get ahead, right? You work hard to get a promotion, get a raise. You're nice to your mean neighbor, so they'll stop being a pain in your neck. You know, you contribute money to a cause, so maybe you get your name on a plaque or get a t-shirt or a pat on the back or whatever. Well, Peter says, no, we're not about quid pro quo. He says, that's not how we approach things. As Christians, we're committed to doing good for God's sake. Here's my, here's my Ray K translation of that. When we do what's right, and honest, and compassionate, and helpful, and generous. Most people appreciate it. But even if they don't, even if they mistreat us in return, God still loves us. That's, you know, and that's helpful information. Uh, and that's why it's possible to suffer for doing good and still experience this degree of joy because we know that God is honored and God is pleased and he loves us no matter what. That's the spiritual reality. And in light of that, Peter says, he, well, he calls Christians to courage. You know, in terms of those who mistreat us, he says, hey, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened by them. Well, sometimes people who mistreat other people are, are themselves acting out of fear. You realize that, right? Um, fear of what they don't understand. Fear of, of failure, fear, fear of being judged, fear of God, fear of being wrong, fear of the truth, fear of loss of control, fear of death. I mean, fear is a very powerful motivator. And persecution is all about that. It's all about intimidation. It's all about instilling, even transferring fear into, onto those uh, who are targeted. Uh, Peter says, when, when, Peter, uh, when people mis, uh, mistreat you, malign you, or threaten to do so, he says, don't be afraid. Don't take on that fear. Keep doing what you know is right, what you know is good. Have confidence in the God who loves you and has promised to someday with justice punish evil. Center your thoughts, center your activities, center your lives around him, not around those who attempt to intimidate you. You guys follow what he's saying? He's saying, hey, look, suffering for doing good may never happen to you, but it might. It's possible. So get ready for the possibility. You know, anticipate the possibility. Be prepared because if you're not prepared ahead of time, dealing with suffering, if and when it comes in the midst of it, it's, it's, it's rough. It, it's, it's harder than 
You know, it's harder than ever. Well, how do you prepare? First things first, Peter says, well, first in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. What does that mean? It means that with a sense of humility and respect and awe, we commit ourselves fully to Jesus, to what he says is, is true and right and good and healthy and best. You know, when, whether it's in regard to suffering or forgiving or serving or, or giving or worship, it doesn't matter. We obey him as Lord of our lives. And um, if he says go, we go. If he says suffer, we suffer. If he says submit, we submit. If he says love, we love. If he says give, we give. I mean, our, our lives are no longer centered just around ourselves and what we want but around God and what he wants for us. Who and what is your life centered around these days? That's an important question for all of us, myself included, because Peter is saying, look, be smart. Don't, don't fear or don't revere people who can hurt you or even threaten to hurt you. He said it's, it's better to fear or to have reverence for the one who can rescue you. Give him preeminence. Jesus put it much more bluntly. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who, who kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who after your body's been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Peter says, look, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he goes on, he says, and always be prepared to give an answer to ev- everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Notice the assumption here. The assumption is we will have hope even in, in, in the worst situation, even in the midst of, of pain and suffering. And if and when we do, Peter says people are going to ask why. You know, they're going to want to know, how can, you, how can you have any degree of hope? How can you have any sense of joy or peace? How, you, how can you be at all positive when everything around you is negative? Peter says, be ready for the question, man, because it's coming. And be ready to explain the difference that the love and grace of God has made in your life and the hope that it's given you. He says, tell everyone who asks you that you trust God no matter how good or bad things get. Share with, you how you, share with them how you've gained an eternal perspective on life and believe it's better to belong to Jesus with everything going wrong than not to belong to him with everything going right. I mean, think ahead of time. Have an answer. And when you respond, don't be an arrogant slob. That's the Ray K translation of what Peter says. You know, don't be, don't be arrogant. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be aggressive. Don't be condemning. Don't be sarcastic. Don't be demeaning. Peter says, but respond how? With gentleness and respect. Frankly, that's how we should respond. We should always respond to people, whatever the situation. And I know that's not always easy. I get that. I was talking to someone this week who was telling me about a guy that they work, a guy they work with who is a, is a self-proclaimed atheist, although I don't believe most atheists are truly atheists. They haven't really thought through things, but he claims to be an atheist. And, and he just rips on them constantly, just rips on them and because of believing in God, being a Christian. He just mocks them incessantly. And they said it's just really hard to take, and I suppose it is. But it's important we understand that, that often that's the approach of those who claim atheism, to mock believers. But mockery is hollow. It's not an argument. It's an attitude. And it does no credit to the person who employs it. It is, however, the last resort for those whose position is bankrupt and untenable. Take the issue of suffering, for example. Unlike Christianity, atheism offers little to ease one's pain in the face of suffering. In the midst of tragedy, how many people do you know run to atheists for answers? No one does that. Why? Because they have absolutely no explanation except to say it's just the brutal, harsh, ugly reality of a meaningless existence. Or in the words of outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, 
in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are, are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe has exactly those properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But here's the thing. Most people don't believe that. Most people don't believe that. Most people recognize the reality of good and evil. Most people believe in justice. Most people believe that there is meaning, there is absolute meaning to our existence and that there is a God and that life is not some freak accident and that love is more than just chemical reactions in our brains. Here's my point. When you interact with people who think differently, atheist or otherwise, treat them with the utmost respect. No mocking in return. Treat them with the utmost respect, even if they don't do the same to you. Because you know what? God loves them whether they realize it or not. And many of them are mixed up. Many of them haven't really thought through it. So share what you believe and let God do his thing. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Let your conversation always be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. And notice Peter, he says, he says the same thing. He said, it's not just what you say and how you say it. It's about how you act. He says, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now remember, it was rumored within first century Roman culture that these Christians were messed up, man. They're a twisted group of people. Have you heard about these people? They're a bunch of cannibals. They eat, they eat, they drink the blood and, and they, they, and eat the body of their leader when they get together. It's weird. They're, they're, they're into perverse sexuality because they, they claim to especially love one another. You know, some, some uh, alleged that these Christians were indeed a threat to the empire because they refused to worship Nero as a god. So there are all these rumors going around. Peter says, hey, let people say what they will. You keep a clear conscience by behaving in a way you know is right and good. For a day is coming when those who spread such lies will be made ashamed of their false accusations. In other words, God will ultimately reveal what's true. Verse 17, he says, man, trust me on this. Trust me on this. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil because evil will be punished. In fact, in verse 18, Peter says, if you want an example of someone suffering for doing good, the precedent has been set. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And the verb the verb bring here was a unique Greek term that carried the idea of someone having right access to a powerful king in his court. Here's my, here's my Reiki translation of that. Peter says, Jesus died for us in order to bring us into right relationship with the great king and ruler of the universe. So what's the overall application? Well, he's saying if Jesus was willing to do good and suffer as a result, how can we be willing to do anything less? You know, should we expect anything less? I mean, like it or not, Peter's point here is Jesus suffered for doing good and we may have to suffer as well. So with all that being true, Peter then ends the chapter with, I got to tell you what, man, Four in the four and a half of the most difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament. Just listen to what he says. He, being Jesus, 
was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and the water symbolizes baptism, and now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, and submission to him. What? Peter, what are you talking about? Yeah, That is a somewhat perplexing rapid series of statements. In fact, in his commentary on this letter, the famous reformer and brilliant theologian Martin Luther wrote, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. That's not helpful to me. I mean, if Luther and other bright theological minds aren't exactly sure what Peter's getting at here, what hope do I have? But here's the deal. I'm not going to wimp out on this. I'm not going to chicken out. I'm For what it's worth, I'm going to give you my opinion. I'll spare you, I'll spare you the exegetical, linguistical, theological technicalities that play into it. But in a nutshell, I think Peter is simply trying to comfort his readers. I mean, he refers to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right? He said, he, Jesus, was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And given the immediate context of what he's talking about, he's saying, Jesus unjustly suffered for doing good to the point of death, but he came back to life forever. And as his followers, we may also suffer for doing good, but Christ's resurrection guarantees our eternal resurrection. See, I really think the statement is meant to be comforting, not confusing. Peter seems to be saying that no matter what happens to us on earth, good, bad, fair, unfair, in Christ, we have the promise of eternal life, and nothing can, ta- nothing can change that. And then to strengthen this sense of comfort, he says in verse 19, after being made alive, he, went and, he being Jesus, went and pro- uh, made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, there are a very few people who suggest this means that Jesus descended into hell and offered a second chance to those who persecuted Noah and died in the flood of Genesis 6 and 7. But I got to tell you, that is a huge stretch and has absolutely no scriptural support. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear. After death, there is no opportunity for repentance. So the question is, who, what, and where is Peter talking about? And for me, I think the key terms here, key phrases are proclamation, imprisoned spirits who were disobedient. Think about it. Proclamation means to announce or declare. And it's a unique term not usually used in reference to sharing the gospel. Whenever the term spirits is used in the New Testament, It's in reference to either spiritual beings who are good, angels, or spiritual beings who are evil and bad, demons. So which is it here, good or bad? Clearly the second, right? Because Peter says these spirits that Jesus made an announcement to were disobedient, self-explanatory, and imprisoned, a Greek term that always referred to a place of judgmental confinement. You say, Ray, you said you were going to save us all the technicalities, get to the point. The point is this. Peter's saying that once Jesus paid the penalty for sin, was resurrected from the dead, and given victory over evil, in a way we will never fully understand this side of heaven, he proclaimed his victory to the unseen realms of evil, including those evil spirits already kept in judgmental confinement for what they did in the days of Noah. Or another way to put it, Jesus is the ultimate example of one who, despite suffering, had victory over evil. Now, as if that wasn't enough, uh, in verse 20, Peter continues, and he cites Noah and his family as a second example of those who suffered for doing what was good, yet in the end, they were rescued, right? Through the ark, Noah and his family were raised above the water, saved from judgment and death. In verse 21, Peter says, that water, that flood water that judged humanity, 
symbolizes the baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge, the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. What does he mean? Peter's simply saying that as Christians, when we are baptized as believers, you know, baptism means wash, but we often dunk people under and bring them back out. When we go down into the water and come back, back out or lift it out, it is a symbolic demonstration of victory over death and judgment. The water of Noah's day of death and judgment, the water of baptism symbolizes death and judgment. When we're raised up through the water, we're raised to new life, to victory. Okay? It's not that water or baptism saves us. Peter makes it clear. He says, I'm not talking about what physical water does, like remove dirt from the body. He says, I'm talking about, and this is key, the personal pledge, you know, the commitment, the faith that baptism represents in a person, you know, the spiritual cleansing of sin uh, from the soul that results in a clear conscience before God. And he says, all of that is made possible by what? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ray K. Summary. Salvation, Peter says, is all about grace, applied by way of faith in Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead and who has gone victoriously into heaven as that, and is at God the Father's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers, good and evil, all in submission to him. Okay? That was easy? Huh? Luther, eat your heart out. <sighs> he needed me around. Uh, look, here's the point. Peter has a lot to say, and he says it in, in short bursts, and, and sometimes it's easy with all the details to get to kind of lose the force for the trees. What is Peter's message to the church here, to us. The message is this, that as Christians, we are not immune to suffering and sometimes suffering unfairly, unjustly. He says the possibility exists that we could someday be hated, maligned, persecuted for doing good. It may not happen. It may not happen, but it could. And yet we're called to courage. Peter says, don't don't fear those who malign or mistreat you, but revere God who loves you no matter what. And be prepared, if and when suffering comes, to with gentleness and respect explain why you have hope. Because Jesus himself suffered for doing good. He died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us all to the great king of the universe. So be comforted. For through Christ's resurrection from the dead, victory over sin and evil has been secured and proclaimed in every corner of the universe. And through faith alone by God's grace, our eternal rescue is sure. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, I, um, I recognize, and hopefully we all do, as we, as we read the words of Peter, as we think about you, our God, the creator of all things, we have to admit in, in, in humility that we can't fully, completely understand everything, all the complexities of the universe, all the complexities of you, our God, the creator. We are limited we're limited in understanding, but I'm grateful, Lord, that you don't, you don't demand us to gain enough knowledge to get into heaven. You don't require us to, to be good enough, to be good as Jesus, to be forgiven and have life. You give us the simple gospel, the good news, that you love us and that Jesus has graciously given himself for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to you the great king and so I pray this morning that um, with faith that we would trust you and and recognize that um, we don't have all the answers and sometimes suffering is just really hard but uh, we have hope because of Jesus who's
suffered as well, but who is victorious over the grave and offers us life everlasting. Uh, we, we, we base our hope and our faith on Him and the grace He brings to us. May all of us understand that, under, understand it and, and, and acknowledge it and believe it this morning. I ask in Jesus' name.